We're having an experience of something that's ineffable, that's non-categorical, that seems to be more profound, more universal, um, and noetic is another word that I really love. Noetic. The noetic quality is that it seems to be true, and it leaves us with the sense that the reality that we normally experience every day is false. Hello, this is the Hidden World Podcast, and I'm your host, Whitney Logan. Today, my guest is my friend, Jeff. Jeff is a journalist and an educator. He is also a yogi, a peacemaker, and a steadfast student of many different spiritual traditions. In today's conversation, Jeff and I talk about the hidden world of psilocybin, or magic mushrooms, and their potential medicine. The use of psilocybin in clinical treatment is an emerging and promising field of study. However, it is still emerging. And so whenever I speak about something that hasn't been sanctioned by the medical powers that be, I want to make sure that my listeners um, understand this very serious and sober caveat. The use of psychoactive substances in any form is dangerous. I do not recommend or condone their use without careful guidance, preparation, and practice. I believe that these substances have the capacity to both cure and to curse the user, and that the right conditions must be present in and around the person who wishes to receive their medicine. Welcome to this week's episode of The Hidden World. Did you post that um, podcast you did with the other? Yeah, I put, it, I put it in my stories because I felt a little bit, um, just a tiny little bit self-conscious about having a permanent post about illicit drugs. Yeah, we, we could talk about that too. Yeah. We could make that part of the podcast. Okay. We're recording, so maybe we should start there. Are we all? Yeah, let's do it. Um, what? Yeah. So the, what's the name of your podcast again? It's called The Hidden World. Right. And so the question is, why would experiences with something like a psilocybin mushroom be hidden? Why would that be something that we feel like we need to hide? Mm. Well, why do you feel like you need to hide it? Um, I think in, in a sense, because I'm here, I've decided that I don't need to hide it, but there is something about it that um, suggests that it should be like, handled with some care when you talk about it openly. And I think part of that may be growing up through the, you know, I was born in the 1960s and then growing up through the 70s when, there, when the government really came down on 
psychedelic substances. Um, and so they were, they were pushed underground, right? For obvious reasons, for people who wanted to have experiences with them needed to hide from the police. And I think a lot of that reaction to psychedelic substances um, is now seen as an overreaction, right? And they're starting to explore clinical uses for them, their effects on depression, their effects, positive effects on depression, positive effects on addiction, and their potential for spiritual awakening and all of the benefits that can derive from someone opening up spiritually. So, but it's, I think it's habitual to feel like maybe this is something I shouldn't talk about. Maybe it could come back to haunt me. We certainly live in a time where the government seems to be moving in a regressive direction, right? And so who knows what the future could look like. We might feel a certain amount of freedom, right? Um, to talk about it now and then later pay the price for it. Yeah. But I, I think that um, to me, the, the benefits kind of outweigh that risk or require that we have a certain amount of courage about the topic so that we do kind of step up and stand for what there is to be learned from it. Yeah, I um, I don't know if you saw the movie Fantastic Fungi. I don't think I did. Okay, it's a documentary film that you should absolutely check out. Um, but part of the film talks about um, how these substances, a lot of these substances were widely used and they were not um, illegal initially. And yet the effect that they had on the users was to become disillusioned with the system that we live in, the dualistic hierarchical system and to react against that or to leave kind of the psychosocial assembly line that had been a prescriptive part of, of the fabric of society and that it was the Nixon government and, and political campaign that really pushed against um, the use and distribution of these substances because they were, they were seen um, a countercultural movement that really sought to undermine their um, worldview and therefore potential to continue control and continue to be empowered to exercise that control. Right. And when this podcast comes out, we might have a more progressive government. We don't know. But at the moment that we're recording it, we actually have a more backwards government than the Nixon administration. You know, Nixon started the EPA. He did a lot of things that 
we couldn't imagine our current administration doing. So when you asked me to do the podcast, I had to think about it for a little bit because I'm a journalist, so I'm, I'm always involved in the public discourse around certain issues. And so I always think about what I'm doing in the public discourse. And I had to think about why would I do this? Why would I come out publicly to speak about experiences with psychedelic um, substances? And I decided that I didn't really have a selfish reason that, but that I had to do it um, in part because it's an opportunity to talk to you again about something that you taught me a lot about. So you're, you've been one of my most important teachers. And I feel like this podcast is another way that you're teaching. And so I also wanted to support this podcast to support your effort to teach the wisdom that you've accumulated. So one of the things that I did in preparation for it was I attended a a seminar that Harvard put on, Harvard and Esalen jointly put on a seminar about medicinal mysticism. It was really interesting because um, two people were on it who had had experiences with psilocybin mushrooms. Um, one of them was an Episcopal minister who said that she was able to see her God which is one of the things that happened to me. Do you remember that? I do. Yeah. Yeah. And we should talk about it. Mm -hmm. The other one was uh, someone who works in climate change and was struggling with depression and said the mushrooms didn't cure her depression, but they gave her a perspective on it. They gave her like a container to put it in. Mm -hmm. They like gave her something bigger than the depression so that it became smaller than it was wow. in her world. And so the fact that, I mean, that made it easier for me, I think, to, to agree to do this podcast because here were some people demonstrating the value of doing it. But they actually brought up this topic and they went beyond the Nixon administration and talked about how when the European conquest by Judeo-Christian conquerors saw these largely indig indigenous practices as demonic. And that may have to do with the politics between religious traditions, right? Yes. So you wanna suppress the indigenous practices. Mm -hmm. And so you associate them with evil Right, so that you you are not just conquering an area um, with your economy and your military might, but you're also taking over the religious um, identity of an of an area which creates, you know, loyalty and you know philosophical moral loyalty to the conquerors. Right. So if you can demonize what exists, you can be more successful in, in the full takeover of a, of a place or a culture. Right. And so even beyond this layer of legal 
suppression of these practices, there may be a much more longstanding tradition of um, religious or cultural suppression of them that may be resonating with us today. Mm. You know, even maybe beneath our awareness. It's, this is fascinating because um, in the conversation I had with Jeremy on the podcast about this topic, I, I mentioned to him that in my own first psilocybin experience, a lot of what came up for me was um, a, a sort of emerging unfolding understanding of Jesus's teachings as a as non-dual wisdom teachings and I, I'm sure you remember me kind of <laughs> preaching his sermons anew in the forest <laughs> I um, but uh and then the second time I did it I remember seeing Jesus and Mary in the sky and so um, for me, psilocybin didn't change my religious um, association or tradition. It deepened and expanded and enlivened it in a way that has really been compelling for me ever since. I think the same is true of this Episcopal minister who talked about it I think she felt renewed by it and maybe it gave her um, an additional perspective on the teachings that she was passing along to her congregation yeah and you know I had studied a lot about non-duality you know, I had read a lot of books. I had done some body practices and some meditation that was supposed to help me touch into that um, or, or feel it briefly. But it wasn't until um, that first ceremony with you in the forest preserve that it became a living, non-duality became a living lens. I, um, and it, the, I, th I think the best way I could describe it is that that made a, an impression in my neural activity or something that was, it was real enough that it has stayed with me. Um, it's still something I can shift into with a little effort. So, you know, there's a lot of times where I get caught up in dualistic thinking, or I even need to be caught up in it in order to function, um, a bit, um, to, to make certain judgments or have certain boundaries in place, um, but whatever the plant taught me that day has, has stayed with me. And I don't know if that's because the groundwork was laid before 
you know, there had been about, you know, I don't know, seven, when did we do this? 2013? Okay. So about eight years of, seven or eight years of psycho-spiritual and physiological work. Um, so that there was almost a, a framework of knowledge and a framework of experience that could, could hold what was happening. And it wasn't overwhelming. I didn't, it's not like I didn't have any cognitive scaffolding to receive this. Um, and I think that really mattered actually. So you just said two really interesting things sort of almost in passing that I want to ask you about. Okay. But before I do that, uh, we should give listeners some background on what we're talking about. So in 2013, I think it was, was it early summer, late spring? Yeah, one of those. Um, I had grown some psilocybin mushrooms at home using a kit that you used to be able to get through the mail. And so I, I felt somewhat confident about their origin because I'd grown them myself. So it wasn't like I was getting psilocybin mushrooms from a stranger and didn't know their source. And that was really important to me too. I, I, when I explained what I was going to do to my husband and some friends and my aunt and uncle and my parents, you know, I, I really wanted it to not be a, a secret. Um, you know, there was enough of like a Midwestern Christian rule following consciousness in me that I didn't want it to be like a secret little drug trip, you know? And so when I explained this, I mean, to my therapist, to the Peruvian shaman I was working to, I said over and over, you know, my friend Jeff has grown these himself. And this is critical for me as far as my willingness to do this. Um, and I, and I actually have never, I've never done mushrooms that weren't grown by you. Oh, <laughs> that means you haven't done them in a long time because I don't have a mushroom farm or anything like that. Yeah, I know. I haven't um, done them since 2014. So what we did was we took some of these mushrooms and we powdered them and you and I went to a forest preserve north of Chicago and just found a secluded spot in the Chicago, in the forest. Um, and, and we mixed them up to make uh, some sort of beverage, right? We mixed them up, was it lemonade? I think it was grapefruit juice. Grapefruit juice. And then we drank them and so we sat in that forest for I think it was six hours then. Yeah, yep. Just to see what happened. Mm-hmm. Now, one we also, um, we were careful about setting up this ritual. Mm. That's so, what I want to ask you about. Okay. You just referred to this as a ceremony. You, you said the ceremony in the forest preserve. <laughs> oh, yeah. And I would say like most people that do psilocybin mushrooms recreationally probably don't think of it as a ceremony. Mm. 
what's interesting about that, I had some experience with mushrooms. I'd first done them in college many, many years before. And then after I grew these, I had a couple of experiences with them to get a sense of their dosage before mm -hmm. I shared them with you. So I had experience with mushrooms and you didn't, but you taught me how to take them. <laughs> mm, yeah. This is one of the reasons that I say you're such a great teacher. Um, you invoked the four directions. You created a container for us in the forest, like a, a safe container. Um, you expressed our spiritual intent. We thanked nature for the setting and we thanked mushrooms for the medicine. Mm -hmm. Where did you learn how to frame the experience that way? Um, from my teacher, um, a man named Carl Greer. He's a Jungian analyst and a, a Peruvian shaman. He was initiated into the um, tradition of shamans in Peru over many, many years and then authorized to be a teacher. Now, he has never ever held a ceremony for me with any kind or anyone that I know of with any kind of illicit um, or I should say illegal, um, psychedelic or mind altering drug. What he did was he, this is how he opened space and created a container for all of the journey work we did, the active imagination work that we would do. Um, and then this is how he also opened space and held a container for group work and how he opened space and held this container for homeopathic um, plant medicine ceremonies. And homeopathic plant medicine basically means extraordinarily diluted to the point that it's not illegal. Um, so it's supposed to just be like the essence or the spirit of the plant and that, um, I mean, I, I did a homeopathic ayahuasca ceremony with him at least once, if not twice in a group setting. And um, I, I did have an experience, but it wasn't, um, it wasn't psychedelic. It was more, um, I don't really know how to describe it. It did feel like I was shaking hands with the plant and agreeing to surrender to sort of the spirit of the plant and allow um, that imaginal interior world within all of us to kind of um, be unfiltered or, or to not try to control anything that was, that was coming up in my mind's eye during the ceremony. And so, I, I did have um, powerful experiences, but they, they were nothing like um, actual psychoactive, ingesting actual psychoactive material. Um, they, were, they were really gentle and there was a kind of willingness on my end to, to sort of lean into it or go with it. Right. Whereas with, with the mushrooms, it was happening to us, you know, and. It wasn't, it wasn't something we could control. 
Right, right. One of the main things I remember is that we we were learning things just from being with the trees, the plants, the grass. I remember being able to look at these things for a while and then have some pretty astonishing understanding about the universe. Right. So the, just to come back briefly to you, you referring to this as a ceremony and setting up a sort of spiritual container for our experience. I've never been able to do mushrooms any other way since then. And so I, you know, I had this experience with a few other friends and with myself, and I always followed that pattern that you taught me of creating a spiritual container for it, expressing a spiritual intent and being grateful to whatever the setting was. And it's turned out to be really important. And I know some other friends had heard that I had mushrooms and they wanted them as people often do to party. And I was like, no, that's not what they're for, yeah. you know? Um, so I feel like I learned a lot about that from that first experience with you. Yeah. What you said about the person at the Harvard lecture who, who also spoke of having their depression held in a wider field of experience, that also happened for me. There was um, a sense of, mm, I don't have a word like depression to use, but the things that had really haunted or, or pained me, um, they lost some of their charge. They didn't, the story and the history and the facts of the, you know, these circumstances didn't change. But I remember seeing them, um, like the initiations that they were, that they had um, opened up space in me that needed to be opened in order eventually, not immediately, but in order to eventually um, have those be sort of um, in the process of healing those things then initiated me into the ability to heal those things in myself, but also in others. Um, and, um, and so I had more reverence for it, I guess, not to romanticize pain, but to, to just see its place in kind of the wheel of opposites or the tension of being both a human and a divine creature, um, So I, when I left the forest, I just felt healthier than I had prior to entering. And that health has remained. It's not the same degree of openness that, that existed in the ceremony, but the wisdom has stayed. Yes, what we learned from it. And I remember those moments when you expressed those epiphanies 
often you would say, oh, like this incredible understanding was dawning on you about, you know, things that had been happening all your life. You were like, oh, now I get it. Yeah, yeah, I remember you telling me um, something like mushrooms are your psychoanalyst or psychoanalysis. Um, Because it was like, um, you know, in six hours, I probably did six years of analysis. (laughs) Yeah, and it, It is really rich the way the lessons that we learn stay with us mm-hmm. during that time. What did you feel like stayed with you? So I, um, during that summer of 2013, I had, I think, eight mushroom trip experiences. And then afterwards, I never wanted to do them again. It's like, it just shows how absolutely non-addictive they are. I didn't feel like I needed to uh, do it anymore. That is interesting. Yeah. Because my timeline is a little fuzzy, but I think that, I think that I did mushrooms four, maybe five, but I'm pretty sure just four. No, five, five times shortly after, you know, some amount of maybe that summer and fall and then also never again. It was like the the work, the teaching was complete. Yeah. Or at least we had bit off enough of it to chew on for a few years, right? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So um, each one of those experiences was different and I learned something different from it. And so that was a, the big question you asked me about what I took away from it. Um, I had different experiences in the daytime versus at night. At night with the lights off, they, it's much more psychedelic. You see colors and things like that. In the daytime where there's a lot of light coming in, the, the visual effects are, for me, it was a kind of fractalization or simplification of the visual field, which was really kind of beautiful. I had experiences with music, this uh, Sanatam Kaur song called Parame Sada. I listened to that song over and over again and I just thought it was the most beautiful thing I'd ever heard. And it still brings me to tears because of that. When I listen to it now, it reminds me of that depth Mm. of experience that I had when I listened to it on mushrooms. One of the most important things I learned was when I took them when I had a cold. What did you learn? So I, I had this cold and I was dosing myself with vitamins and zinc and herbs and all kinds of things to give my body this like weapons in the war against my cold. And when I, I had these mushrooms while I had the cold, I didn't feel good at the time. I still felt, you know, worn down and stuff like that. But I very clearly got a message from my body. And the message was, you don't need to give me all this junk. Yeah. All I need from you is compassion. Mm. And that was really 
revelatory. I mean, I think that I actually thought of being sick as a kind of a war where you're being invaded by some kind of Mm. microbes or something and you have to give yourself weapons to fight them right so all these vitamins and herbs and medicines and um there's a concept in um ayurveda called ahamkara and it refers to the ego but it also refers to the intelligence that operates the body when we're not aware of it yeah and so I felt like this was a conversation with that intelligence. The intelligence that my, operates my body all the time was saying to me, I don't need the vitamins and the zinc and all this crap you're giving me and actually all the stress that goes along with it. I just need you to be compassionate with yourself, with your physical being. That um, concept in Ayurveda um, is something that I learned about after having had some experiences like this, um, not psychedelic experiences, but and I don't really totally remember how this began, but, um, somewhere along the way, I started practicing listening to my body and I don't mean, um, like, am I hungry? Am I tired? I mean, um, sort of attuning to or bringing my attention into the internal space of my body. Um, and, and, and I've had many different teachers that have enhanced this practice for me over time. But, um, and then listening and being really quickly um, filled with information and images and um, understanding. And, and that I think is not a very widely um, circulated concept in the Western world that consciousness is not just in the head, it's in the body and that, that there's, there's information, there's stories, there's beliefs, there's emotions, there's memories in the body. And, and that you, you can allow yourself to be in conversation with it. And then you have a lot more of your wisdom available to you. Did you also have the experience, you said you did four or five trips. Did you also have the experience of each one being really different or about something else? Yes. Um, the second one, we went back to that same spot in the forest. And because I remember the bugs were worse. Mm -hmm. And I don't remember that one as well. Yeah. And then the third one, we went to the like secret beach on the south side of Chicago. And that was the one where we had just an open expanse of sky available. Yeah, it was a beautiful and, day. Oh, and I, that's where I saw every 
um, divine archetypal reality in the sky through that like fractal, the thing that you're describing, this like, it, it wasn't in colors. It, it didn't look anything like a Fantasia scene. It was just light and um, clouds and sky, but it, I could see, I, I felt like a baby um, under a mobile in a crib, you know, and that the sky was just telling me this, the sort of archetypal story of, of being, of being a human consciousness receiving the divine mystery. It was so gorgeous. And I remember crying. Um, and then the, the fourth one, I think, uh, or maybe I'm getting these out of order. We went to um, that beach on the North shore. I had been really anxious about not being able to get pregnant when I wanted to. And in that experience, that anxiety was neutralized. I, I understood that what was coming was its own autonomous, you know, entity being with its own soul journey that had nothing to do with when I felt ready or not, you know? Right. Um, and, and I, I saw that as, um, like a like a wave in in the ocean breaking on the shore whenever it was going to um and that all I had to do was was be there and and be open I I really got very clear about receptivity being a practice and um a, a very conscious sacred act um, and then I also understood it was going to happen whether or not I, that I would, that it would be more meaningful for me personally in my own development, if I could participate consciously in this receptivity, but I, it was really clear to me that nothing I was going to do was going to change when this soul was coming. Like I could feel her. Yeah. Um, and, and that was, that was really powerful because I, I still remember, I mean, I don't know if you remember this, but I was so clear for so long that there was a, like a, a baby girl coming. And then there was. I do remember it. Yeah. So the, the other question I wanted to ask you about from a while ago, a phrase you've used a couple times now, you've said the best way I could describe it is, and that kind of brings up the ineffable aspect of these experiences. Ineffable is a really great word. Um, referring to that which can't be described, right? Or put into words. We can only speak of these experiences through the lens of our language and the lens of what we know, which like for me, has to do with like a Catholic upbringing and maybe a Buddhist maturity, but the experience itself is really unrelated to that categorical level of knowledge, right? It's a, we're having an experience of something that's ineffable, that's non-categorical, that seems to be more profound, more universal, 
Um, and noetic is another word that I really love. Noetic. The noetic quality is that it seems to be true. And it leaves us with the sense that the reality that we normally experience every day is false. Yeah. And what, what do you do with that? <clears throat> I mean, personally, what, what have you done with that? It feels to me like an initiation, like um, moving the curtain back on something. Yeah. And seeing clearly. And then, and then the curtain kind of, well, I don't, I don't want to answer this for you, but where for, I'll say for me, it's like that curtain is now movable. Yeah. So what have you done with that? I think for me, um, the practice that moves that curtain is meditation. And I, I think it's very astute of you to refer to the mushroom experience ceremony as an initiation because it kind of shows you, it gives you a glimpse of the space that you're seeking in meditation where you're not, you are um, liberated from your thoughts being your world and you can see them from um, a more universal perspective. So that's what I've, I've done with it. It's, um, I meditate every day and I, I, it's nothing like a mushroom experience, but you, it's the same direction. Yeah, that's a beautiful way to say it. So I wonder if this experience that we're talking about offers a clue as to why some people have found mushrooms to be helpful in overcoming addiction. I, um, I wasn't addicted to anything when we did them. I was a social drinker, you know, out with friends, I would have beer and I would have wine and things like that and occasionally have those at home, not very often. But after this series of mushroom experiences, ceremonies, as you called them, I completely lost interest in alcohol and, and other kinds of substances. And what, um, what was really interesting for me about it is that it came on as a kind of proprioception. Like I remember going out with a friend who was a yoga teacher who was she was leaving, she was moving to open a studio in Southern Illinois. And we went to her last class and then we went out for wine. And I had two sips of this glass of wine and then just pushed it away because I could feel its depressive effects on my body. And after the mushroom trips, I felt so animated. So uh, Shakti would be the, the word in Vedanta for the energetic feeling that I was left with. Can you say more about Shakti as an energetic feeling for the uninitiated in, in that tradition? I wonder if you would be better at that. I don't think so. Really? Mm -mm. So Shakti is, is sort of the life energy of the universe. 
And it, it might actually relate to your nature experiences because um, in the Hindu tradition, you can go to the forest to experience Shakti. And I think all of us, when, we, when we're in nature and we have this feeling of, it's both calm and uplifting at the same time, that's sort of an absorption of Shakti. And Shakti comes from the sun and plants absorb it. So it's very, it has a relationship to the concept of light, right? So if you're around plants, they kind of radiate their Shakti as does anything that's living. So I think the, the mushroom ceremonies um, put me in closer touch with that I don't know, should we call it a vibration? Yeah. And, um, and so I was, I was very aware of how I felt in that sense. And so when I drank a couple sips of this glass of wine, I could feel that it was having a negative impact on that sensibility that I had. In the very first ceremony we had, um, I remember thinking, oh, there is no death. <laughs> <laughs> there's no death. There's no loss. There's no, I mean, there is the feeling of death and the feeling of loss and the feeling of harm. And, but we are actually the all. And this human experience is sort of um, just one pinpoint of consciousness. Um, one one place where um, one place where where it felt like a romance story for me. Like um, you you come from unitive bliss, and then you part of the divine consciousness. Um, gets ignited in the in the being in the human being in the animal being in the plant being in all the beings um through the breath the first breath you know that and then the opportunity of the opportunity of being a human being is to reconnect consciously um, with the all, with the unit of bliss. And um, it, it felt like a, like a love story, you know, that this was the way that um, love could become conscious of itself was to choose to separate and, and then have to find its way back. And, um, and I saw it as sad that we didn't know this or that we had forgotten. We talked a lot about remembering. Do you remember that? Yeah. Yeah. I do. And I always think of your phrase, remembering what we already know. Oh, yeah. Yeah. As, as what we do in spiritual practice. Yes. So that became really clear to me um, that this 
that the point of being a person or the opportunity of being a person was to remember and that word remember like actually remember um reconnect what belongs to the word religion even is from uh, you know i've i've heard it said that it some in one particular teacher told me it was from the word religamentous, which is to like re-ligament. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so that was, that was very exciting and healing to discover and to, and to become really clear about. Um, and I think it has given me a framework, you know, a lived felt experiential framework of knowledge to um, hold suffering inside of. It's that to bring, <clears throat> to bring us full circle, it's really interesting that certain institutions would try to prevent people from having that experience. Well, why do you think that is? Um, I imagine that it, that's a really complicated question to answer. Like one thing it can be traced to is capitalism, which is a system that runs on attachment. And so if you, if you glimpse some universality that kind of divorces you from the necessity of participating in that tradition. Um, I, it, I suppose they could feel threatened by that. But it, it also goes back, I think, before capitalism. Well, so one of the reasons I think Jesus came up so much for me in that first ceremony and subsequent ones because I think he was preaching this, what we're talking about, um, essentially saying we, your ideas of power are an illusion. <laughs> you know, you think you can kill me? Yeah. You think you can kill anyone? You, you think that power is is this? Yeah. And it's that's a, a huge threat to people who hold temporal power. Yeah, so they did kill him. And then the story, I'm not married to it needing to be a literal event, but I, I'm open to it being completely literal. I just feel very open. But the story, the teaching of the story is that because Jesus did not die. That makes everything he said about power and money and um, status and position and violence and greed, it makes all of that true, which is, an, if it's all true, then there's an incredible, <laughs> it's a liberation theology. 
So yeah, that's very threatening. Amen. <laughs> yeah. But you were kind of already living this way. I mean, one of the things that you taught me in our conversations when we were on mushrooms um, was that you were already living outside of the system that you had sort of already said, it promised me something, but instead it gave me illness, both physically and mentally. And so I found these other practices and paths that offered wellness. And then my attachments to the things that I used to believe I needed to have began to diminish. Yeah, I've, you know, you're talking about yogic practices that I got involved with when it, it was probably about four years before we had these experiences. When I had sort of hit bottom and physically and mentally from the pursuit of conventional success. And, um, you know, there had to be something, a better way to live. There had to be a different way to live. And I found that through yoga. And I think like, you know, like meditation, other forms of yoga lead in this direction, right? It's all about unity. <clears throat> um, what you said about remembering and religion um, and the mushrooms give us a window seems like yeah like a way back in yeah so we know where what we're practicing for yes oh wow what a way to say that so we know what we're practicing for yeah hmm or so we remember what we're practicing for. Yeah, I'm always really cautious about holding this out there like it is a necessary or a penultimate experience. Sure. Um, because I do think that when worked with irresponsibly or if, if someone has certain um, pathology, um, that's not the right word. If somebody has a family history of um, psychotic breaks or if they themselves have had those that, that then these substances may or may not be appropriate and that that would need to be determined by um, somebody other than two people talking on a podcast that that would you'd want to engage this stuff I'm not saying it's not permissible it's just that it would be um, my advice would be to have it supervised by a trained professional yeah, absolutely. And um, I mean, uh, this Harvard experiment that I, I tuned into their seminar about, they did it in a hospital in a controlled environment with controlled dosages of psilocybin that had been extracted and, you know, everything was, was really controlled. And when you're dealing with mushrooms, it's, it's not as controlled. I know that it's super important for me if I'm 
going to approach one of these experiences to be in a mental state where I'm not feeling anxiety because anxiety can take you in, you know, in a different direction than the one that we've been talking about. And the set in the setting, ever since the first Westerners experimented with mushrooms, they've been talking about set and setting. You want to be in the right mindset and you want to be in the right setting, which I think um, you helped with, with the forest and the invocation at the beginning. Uh, you taught me a lot about that. Yeah, I would, I would never want to have, like, I think someday maybe I would like to do ayahuasca, but I would want to do that in Peru with, you know, the, the people that have been trained in holding space for that for uh, centuries. Yeah. Um, and um, I would want to prepare the way they instructed me to prepare. I just have so much respect and reverence and a little bit of fear and trembling towards these um, plant teachers. Yeah, yeah, me too. I was in India and some Ukrainian guys that I didn't really know that I just bumped into told me they had some ayahuasca and invited me to their ceremony. And I was like, thanks, but no thanks. That's yeah, that would be a big hell no from me. <laughs> That's not the kind of container I want to be in mm -mm. when I have that experience. Okay. So Jeff, I don't know if you've listened to um, any of the episodes that have been released so far. Of I have. Okay. So you'll know then that at the end of every episode, I like to ask my guest, what is one thing you wish everyone knew? The answer that immediately popped into my head and then I, I had to decide whether to go with this answer because it's kind of corny or try to find something else but now I think I've decided to just go with it the one thing I wish everyone really knew is who we really are mm, yeah so um I have a very embodied yes feeling when you say that, but I, if you can, I'd like for you to clarify, who are we really? So that's one of those ineffables um, that it's hard to put into words. And if you do put it into words, the effective language is really to diminish it. So it's often described metaphorically in literature that tries to describe it. Um, but I think you can put it in sort of negative terms by saying we're not who we think we are, literally in the sense that we're not who our thoughts are. Um, one of the really palpable experiences I have in meditation is just being the person who's watching the thoughts so if someone's watching the thoughts, then there is someone who isn't the thoughts. And that someone doesn't seem to be so affected, so preoccupied with the thoughts. That someone seems to be quite calm, 
blissful. You know, I don't want to characterize it for everyone because that's just my experience, but um, there's something to the human that's different from the everyday experience of ourselves. Yeah. I, I really respect your restraint here in not trying to describe something that can't be described. Who was um, Ram Dass's teacher in India? Neem Karoli Baba. Hmm. So I, maybe I'm attributing this story to the wrong person, but I think they gave him LSD, isn't that right? Yeah. And he took it and nothing happened. Right. Nothing changed for him. And then he said to them, oh, I see. This will get you in the door with Jesus or get you in the room with Jesus, but you can't stay there. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Thank you so much for doing this, Jeff. Thank you for doing it. Yeah. It's and so for inviting me. It's so good to see you and talk to you live in action through a screen. Yeah, it's amazing. Thank you to my beautiful friend, Jeff, for diving into this hidden world with me today. The Hidden World is produced by David Gomez. Our theme song is written and recorded by David Gomez. And I'm your host, Whitney Logan. Be good to yourselves and each other.